Thank you again for coming to join us this morning here at Hammock Street Church on site, online. I thank you all for being here, for watching, for being a part of the Hammock Street family. I hope that you remember that we are in the third week of a sermon series called Big Church, how a single event launched a movement. If you need to catch up, you can always go to hammockstreetchurch.com. Check on the messages, they're all up there. You can watch, get caught up. But now, the question is why call this big church? It's kind of a weird thing. Well, we call it big church because the church, and I don't mean just Hammock Street Church, but I mean the ecclesia. You guys are awesome, but I'm talking about the church, the, the large global gathering of Christians all over the world. That's a really big deal. Roughly a third of the world's population professes to be a follower of Jesus. So here's a question. We kind of touched on it a little bit last week. When you think about church, what comes to your mind? Hopefully, you grew up and had a great church experience. I'd like to think that my sons had a great church experience. They're grown-ups now, but they still go to church, which that's a good indication that they enjoyed it when they were young. But I hope you had a great church experience. I hope you attended a Bible-believing church. I hope your church helped you to draw closer to God, to have a better understanding of God. But maybe you don't have that. Maybe you only vaguely remember church. You remember it as the place your parents took you to when you were a kid. And you kind of found it boring. And you weren't excited to be there. And you kind of rolled your eyes. Or maybe you had a church experience that just now left you indifferent toward the church. Maybe it was really bad. Now you don't want anything to do with it. Or maybe you thought, hmm, I thought it was going to be better than this and really let me down. Or maybe like me, you didn't grow up in the church at all. And so you only know the church as a building that you used to drive past. Or like the image on our screen, anybody know what that image is, what church that is? It's St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Every time I go to New York City, I try to stop by St. Patrick's. It's such a beautiful building, an old Gothic building. It's really nice. Maybe that's how you know the church. Maybe you just know it from driving by, or maybe you went to a church once because your friend's baby sister was being christened or something. Or maybe you've explored churches in Europe, and you just kind of see them as museums, and you're sightseeing going through a church. But no matter what your church experience, as we've discussed over the last two Sundays, we need to wrap our heads around the fact that the church, as it first began in that first century, was probably nothing like anything that we've experienced. You see, as we talked about, when the church began, the church didn't begin as a building, and it didn't begin as an institution or an organization. The church, when it first started, began as a movement, a movement that began upon Jesus' ascension, his rising up to heaven about 2,000 years ago. And over the last couple of weeks, we talked about the initial group of about 120 people that formed the foundation of the Jesus movement. Now, when those early believers took to the streets in Jerusalem, they rallied around an event, a particular event that actually happened, and that was the resurrection. And they rallied around a particular name, the name of Jesus, well, in today's verses, we're going to see just how important to the movement that name, Jesus, was and remains today. So in the streets of Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was the talk of the town. 
Jesus was that Galilean rabbi that was crucified. And the people who were in Jerusalem could say that that was crucified like 100 yards away over there. Like he was right there. That's where he was crucified. And then he rose from the dead about 200 yards from where they were right over there. This was something that really happened and they really saw it. And it was right there in their town. It was right there in their presence. And those things happened not 20 years before they were talking about them or 50 years before they were talking about them, but they just happened. It was just a few months before they started talking about them. And unlike the uncertainty today that has been caused by anti-Christian doubt and anti-Christian debate, in that day there was no confusion regarding the foundational truth about the early church's message. There was no argument, there was no question that the early church's message was about the fact that Jesus was the Christ, was the Messiah, was the Son of the living God that came to seek and save the lost in the world. Now, it's interesting, the faith of those who follow Jesus was never meant to be a new religion. Instead, it was supposed to be the culmination of all religion, because unlike other faiths, which are centered around a notion that there are rules and there are rule breakers who are all striving to answer the question, what do I do about the rules I've broken? And by the way, a lot of us think today that that's what church is about. Well, here are the rules, and you need to ask yourself, have you kept the rules? Have you broken the rules? But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came into this world, sent by God the Father, to say, I am the solution to that problem. I am the solution to that dilemma, to that question. And I've come to forgive you of your sins. Now, his followers took to the streets of Jerusalem to proclaim he, Jesus, is risen from the dead. And that served to validate His message, the message that holds that because of Jesus, we can now have peace with God. That is huge. Now, in the first message in this series, we saw that on the first day, we called it opening day. On the opening day of the church, 3,000 people embraced that message and became followers of Jesus. And then just a couple of weeks after that, 2,000 more people did the same thing. And in fact, by the time the story picks up in our verses that we'll be reading through today, over 5,000 men had joined the movement. Now, by the way, it says men in the scripture. That's just the way they counted. But we can make assumptions. We don't, can't make exact assumptions. But we could say 5,000 men means a bunch of wives and a bunch of children. So there were quite a few people there. That's just the way they counted. 5,000 men and all the women and all those children had embraced the message of Jesus. And so the movement following Jesus was beginning to gain traction. Solely due to the incredible message that right over there, he was crucified. And right over there, he rose from the dead. And no one was clamoring for the body. We don't see any indication when people were searching around for the body. They saw him walking around. The dead man got up and walked. They saw him do it. Now, if that had happened in 21st century America, imagine how fast that news would have spread. Television, podcasts, tweets, Instagram, TikTok. Can you imagine all the stuff they would have had? I could just see them doing that flip thing where they showed Jesus kind of walking out of the grave and then back and then walking out of the grave and then back. No? It didn't happen in 21st century America, though, did it? 
It happened in first century Jerusalem. And that gave rise to some unique challenges for this new movement. Because first century Jerusalem was a powder keg. Because it was a place in the Middle East, in the place we now know of as the nation of Israel. But at that time, Jerusalem and the environs, the places around it, were ruled by the Roman Empire, by a, what we would now call a European ruler. And the Romans had a way of ruling, and they did permit the local people a fair amount of self-governance. So they, they gave the Jews a fair amount of self-governance, but it cost them. It cost the Jews a bit. The Romans ruled by allowing their subjects to run their own communities, communities for so long as those communities didn't give Rome any trouble. For so long as those communities didn't permit any unrest to take place in their midst, which would upset the Roman apple cart. Now, that meant for the Jews that the Romans had a hand in choosing the Jewish leader and choosing the Jewish high priest and also other leadership. The Jews were permitted to run their temple, which was the center of their life, the center of their lifestyle, but they were only permitted to do so as long as they maintained the peace. So a risen Messiah, whom the Jews believed would overthrow the Romans and establish Jewish dominance in the city, was not something the Romans would abide, okay? This brand new Jesus movement and all the talk generated thereby made the Romans and the Jewish leaders, the leaders of the Jewish establishment, pretty nervous. As a result, Jesus' followers were persecuted. Now, remember Peter and John, the number one guy in the movement after Jesus left, the number two guy in the movement? They were arrested and spent the night in jail. We talked about that last week. And the Jewish authorities, when they arrested them, said, listen, stop talking about the resurrection and stop talking about the name. So, after they spent their little stint in the slammer, Peter and John went back to meet with the other believers. And as we talked about last week, instead of instructing Jesus' followers to try to keep things a little bit more low-key, hey guys, we just got arrested for that, y'all are talking too much, can you kind of hold this down? Instead of doing that, they recorded the first prayer and asked the Lord for more boldness, even though it was their boldness that got them thrown into the slammer in the first place. More boldness. And then they went out into the streets and they began to preach. And they understood that it would get them into even more trouble. When Peter and John and the others boldly proclaimed the resurrection and the name of Jesus, they did so willingly, knowingly, at great risk of their personal peace, of their personal comfort, of their personal safety, and even risking their lives. But their lives didn't look much like our lives at all. Because for us, notwithstanding, notwithstanding kind of the fear-mongering that you hear by some who say, you know what, we are really under attack and we are really being persecuted, notwithstanding all those chattering faces and mouths, we believers actually have it pretty good in America today. Though we might pray all the time for safety and blessing, and we all do, actually, we already have that. Speaking for myself, I sometimes wonder whether God just kind of rolls his eyes when I pray. You know, God, please give me travel mercies. And he's like, oh, brother. I just feel like my prayers are so petty sometimes because of my lifestyle, an American lifestyle. I pray, oh, God, please keep me safe. And he's up there shaking his head. Russell, you live in Boca Raton. You're already safe. 
God, please bless me and my family. Like Russell, compared to the vast majority of people in this world, you are blessed far beyond anything you could have dreamt of even 50 years ago. That goes for all of us. It really does. You want to test that statement? Travel to a place that is not Boca Raton, particularly travel to a poorer country and look around. Years ago, we were down in Mexico, not, not at a resort in Mexico, but in, in, in a neighborhood, in the barrio. And safety and blessing for the church were not a given. The pastor of the church had to Come in and tell us, listen, when the sun goes down, you can't walk out over there, and we're going to leave the doors unlocked for a while, but let's be careful, and when we go to sleep, we have to lock everything up. And if those people heard any of the prayers that I pray in Boca Raton in America, they would just shake their heads and laugh. You Americans have it so good. Why would you be so afraid? Why do you feel like you're so deprived? I mean, think about it. We have safe cars. We have safe streets and highways. Driving in Mexico. Anybody ever drive in Mexico? There's not even any traffic rules. There's no lines painted in the street. There's no signs. There's no lights. It's just this big free-for-all that you just drive. We have watertight houses. When it rains, our houses don't leak. And if they leak, we lose our minds. We have plentiful and affordable food. Get this, we have unlimited clean water. And we even have conditioned air. They don't have that everywhere. We have so much. And yet we continue to feel afraid and deprived. We've arrived at the place where we don't even notice our blessings and our abundance anymore. We're like the two young fish. There are these two young fish, they're swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish. Swimming the other way, who kind of nods at them and shakes his fin, says, morning, boys. The older fish says, how's the water? The two young fish swim on a little bit and kind of look at each other. And eventually, one of them looks over to the other one and says, what's water? See, the fish don't even notice the water in which they live. And like them, we are so blessed that most of the time, we don't even notice the abundance in which we live. And that's kind of resulted in our praying our small, anemic prayers about our own needs that we perceive that we have, in which we ask for even more stuff, more safety, more blessing. And that's not very bold. That's not a bold prayer. And without bold prayers, we lose our edge. We lose sight of the thing that God has called us to be all about, the message that everybody lives somewhere forever, and God, the Father, through Jesus, God the Son, has made a way for everyone who comes to him to live their eternity in abundance, in abundance connected forever to the God of the universe. Now, the early church was all about that. In fact, the last thing the early church worried about was themselves. All their concern was for the people around them. And the world around them noticed. When you start caring for people around you, the people around you begin to notice that you care. The world noticed the way they treated each other, the way they the way they got along with each other, the way these believers treated outsiders. They treated them with respect and with grace and with love. The outsiders noticed the way that the believers responded to persecution. They noticed the way that the believers responded to being left out and ostracized. And the outside world looked in at the believers with awe. 
and granted them favor in their communities. The early believers had favor in their culture. Do Christians have favor in our culture today? Not really. But the early believers had favor in their culture because there was something undeniably wonderful about them. We don't have the same impact on the culture today. And that's at least partially because we're so blessed that we've lost our boldness. Now, take a minute here. Do not misunderstand. We should never feel guilty about being blessed. Never. God gave us these blessings. God put us here. He doesn't want us to feel guilty about that at all. But we should continue to feel responsible for sharing God's blessing with those people around us. And in order to do that, we're going to take a look at the early church to see how we can tap into some of their boldness. So that's what we're doing today. All right? So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Father God, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word, the Bible that you've given us, you've left us, so we can understand how things went back then and how you would have us apply the lessons we've learned to our lives today. So Lord, as we look at your word, we would ask that you would open our hearts and minds to drink it in and apply it to our lives. We thank you, God, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're jumping into this message. Today's message is called Big and Bold, and we're continuing on in the book of Acts. Remember, that whole title is called The Acts of the Apostles. So now remember, the book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke was a physician, a doctor. He traveled with the Apostle Paul. We believe the Apostle Paul had some sort of medical problem, and so Luke followed him, traveled with him, kind of to help him out, but also he was his benefactor. In other words, he gave money to support Paul's ministry. So what happened was Luke wrote two things. He wrote the gospel of Luke. It was written all as one. The gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. And the book of Acts provides a detailed account, historical account, of the things that happened in the early church. And because Luke is a physician, so he's a doctor, which means he's fairly organized in his thinking and he knows a lot of stuff. That's where the book of Acts gives us sort of an organized step-by-step picture of what happened in the early church. So Here's the story. I feel like when I say, and here's the story, I should hear a doink, doink, you know, from the law and order stuff. But we don't have that because I couldn't get that into the sermon in time. But here's the story. Now, we've already seen how Peter and John met with the 120 followers after they spent the night in jail and they prayed for boldness. Well, they continued to preach the message of Jesus and the resurrection and more and more people came and embraced that message. And word spread, as word spread, that something big was going on in Jerusalem, hundreds of more people descended upon the city. They wanted to see this Jesus that they were hearing about. And with them, they brought their sick and their blind and their lame to be healed by the apostles. Remember, Jesus gave the apostles a temporary ability, temporary power to heal so as to signal God's power. More and more, as more and more people came from all over, they came to believe in Jesus. And the religious leaders, as you might well imagine, were beginning to get upset. This movement is growing. And the Jewish religious leaders are going, wait a minute, if this movement grows too big, it's going to kind of overtake our movement, and then we'll have nothing. We won't have our jobs. We won't have our power. We won't have our prestige. They didn't like it. They started to get very jealous, Luke tells us. They were also jealous because everybody loved the Christians. Everybody loved these believers. Everybody loved that... Jesus' people were able to go out and perform miracles. So what did the religious leaders do? Well, they put an end to it. So they thought they, they had the apostles arrested and they were put in the public jail. Now, it's really interesting. When you're reading through Acts, there's so much 
precise detail in it that for anybody who says this is just some sort of story and just some sort of broad brush picture, there's way too many individual details. The apostles were put into the public jail as opposed to the temple jail or as opposed to another jail, the public jail. It's important. That's, that's the detail we need to know. So the religious leaders put the put the apostles in public jail thinking that a night in jail would sort of stop them from all this talk about Jesus. That was their plan. But here's what happened. During the night, the angel of the Lord came and opened the door to the prison cell and the apostles just walked out. And then the angel of the Lord told them, go into the temple, go into the temple courts and preach the resurrection in the name of Jesus. So that's what they did. And as a result, when the religious leaders returned to the jail, they saw the apostles were gone. And before long, they figured out that the apostles hadn't gone too far. They were just right downstairs doing the exact same thing that they had been doing that got them thrown into prison in the first place. Now, as you might imagine, the religious leaders were a little peeved. Scripture says they were furious. So they sent the temple guard to rearrest the lads, and by that time... The apostles had a crowd around them listening. Well, the guard convinced the apostles to join them back before the Jewish tribunal. It's interesting, the Bible says the guard was afraid to take them back by force because that would upset the crowd, and that would be a bad thing. Anyway, the apostles agreed. They went back before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin's the judicial court of the Jews. And the apostles were asked by the Sanhedrin to explain what they were doing out there in the public court. So now we're going to pick up this story in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Okay, so here's what they said to them. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Whose name? Jesus' name. Who's the high priest? The high priest, in Hebrew it's the Kohen Gadol, by the way, if you've ever met a person whose last name is Cohen, that's where the word Cohen comes from. The name Cohen comes from, from Kohen, which means the high priest, Kohen Gadol. So we gave you strict instructions not to teach in his name. All right. Note that they didn't say not to teach in Jesus' name. They didn't even want to name Jesus because it was too disruptive to even say his name out loud. So they just said his name. Over the years, I've been asked to open certain official events. I've had to pray at judicial installations and the beginning of conferences and whatnot. And without fail, whenever I've been asked to do that, I've always been instructed, don't say Jesus. You can say God, but don't say Jesus. Which I always find interesting that 2,000 years later, the name still disrupts. So we continue on, verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. This is interesting. So that's the high priest. He's the highest authority in all the Sanhedrin. And he's bugging, he's hectoring the apostles because they're making it sound like the Jewish leaders were responsible for killing Jesus. How come he was able to do that? Because they were responsible for killing Jesus. Also, again, note, they didn't say his name again. They just said this man. Now, how did Peter know that they were responsible for killing Jesus? Well, he was there. He saw it all. So given that fact, verse 29, P 
Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. Continuing on, verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Now, note how the next verse we read highlights the way that Christianity is distinct from all other faiths. Verse 32, we are witnesses. Christianity is different because the Christians saw it happen. It's not based on a book. It's not based on a legend. It's not based on a dream. They saw it happen. They didn't just hear it. They didn't just believe it. They saw it. They were grounded in their faith. So Peter explained to them that they didn't believe the thing that he just told them about, Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection, just because they believed it because they'd all witnessed it. Even the people in the Sanhedrin, they saw it too, right there in Jerusalem. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter's mind was made up. And he and the others were going to preach Jesus and preach the resurrection at every opportunity, period. No one's going to talk him out of it. Well, the Jewish leaders, as you might well imagine, were not pleased. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. They wanted to kill all the apostles. That's not a surprise. Why? Well, think about it. They already killed the movement leader. They already thought they were going to put an end to the movement by killing the movement leader, Jesus. So it's only natural that they would then turn their attention to the main followers. Maybe we should kill them too. But watch what happened. And by the way, if you are a person who just reads the Bible a lot, I don't know that you, might, that you noticed this. You might have sped right past it, but check this out. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law. Anybody remember Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the rabbi under whom the apostle Paul studied. So he shows up in Acts before Paul shows up in Acts. So, teacher of the law who was honored by all of the people, he was a well-respected rabbi, stood up in the Sanhedrin and he ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. But this is something, it's on my bucket list of things to do. I want to one day walk into a room where there's a bunch of people and go, give us the room and then send everybody out. Don't you always see that on television? I also want to push someone's head down as I shove them in the back seat of a car. That's another thing I want to do one day, like the police do. Anyway. So he, say, he clears the room, sends everybody out but the Sanhedrin, and then Gamaliel says this. He says, guys, take a beat. Before we go and make another dozen or so martyrs, let's, let's clear this room so we can talk about this. Verse 35, then... Gamaliel addressed the Sanhedrin. He says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Why? Well, he's, he's reminding them. He says, remember, some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. During this time, there were a lot of false messiahs that showed up. So this, whoever this Theudas guy is, we don't really know much about him. But he showed up. He said he was somebody. 400 men said they would follow him, and he was killed. And what happened to the movement? Everybody left. All his followers dispersed, and it all came to nothing. 
So this, this similar situation had taken place before with this guy, Theudas. And, and, and that situation didn't work out for the followers. So that's what Gamaliel was trying to tell them. And then he continued on and he said this. He said, after him, after Theudas, came Judas the Galilean. Well, we know a little bit about Judas the Galilean. Now, from contemporaneous sources, which is a fancy way of saying, from people who are also writing at the time it was happening, but there were extra biblical sources, which meant they weren't coming from inside the Bible, but actually extra outside of the document of the Bible, those historical documents. So according to that, we know that Judas the Galilean lived at a time when the governor of Syria called for a census to determine a way to raise taxes based upon how much money the people made and how many people had settled in the area. By the way, do you see it? It's exactly what we do in politics today. Oh, he's looking to tax the people more and more. But in about 6 or 7 AD, Judas the Galilean staged a protest to those taxes, almost like their version of the Boston Tea Party. And that started a movement. And the people that followed Judas the Galilean were the first group known as the Zealots. Have you heard of the Zealots? Well, you've heard of the Zealots. You've probably heard the word before. This is where it began. One of Jesus' followers, you remember his name? Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' followers, Simon the Zealot, was a follower of Judas the Galilean. All right, here's the rest of that verse. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people to revolt. What happened to him? He too was killed, and all of his followers scattered. So in essence, Gamaliel is saying to them, guys, do you remember those movements? We didn't get involved at all. And Rome squashed the movements all on their own. If we'd have meddled in those movements, Rome would have squashed us too. And if we'd have taken side against the movements, the people would have been against us. So he said, listen, let's just stay neutral in this. Let's stay out of this. Let's let everything play out. The Romans are really good at taking care of these problems if they get out of hand. So that's what he was saying to them. So then he said in verse 38, therefore, I present the case, this is still Gamaliel, I advise you, leave these men alone. Leave the apostles alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. You get that? In other words, if this is just another fly-by-night movement, it'll fail. Rome will make sure of that. Rome takes their empire very seriously, so they're not going to let this slide. But then Gamaliel said this, but if it, if this movement is from God... You won't be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, isn't that interesting that a Pharisee teacher, a Pharisaical rabbi by the name of Gamaliel was looking at this Jesus movement and saying, you know, there could be something to this. Pretty cool. Gamaliel was saying, there's only one thing that can overcome the power of Rome, and that's God. If anything is going to change here, it's going to take an act of God. Do you know that today there are more crosses in Rome than in any other single city in the world? And those crosses represent one single crucifixion. And they represent that crucifixion because that crucifixion had after it a resurrection. Every one of those crosses represents the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now, the Roman Empire is no longer. Rome still exists, but they're not an empire. 
But Rome is still today considered by many the capital of Christianity. Gamaliel was right. Only an act of God could make that happen. So, verse 40, Gamaliel's speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they didn't kill him. Instead, they just had him flogged. Flogging was a practice of whipping a person with a whip known as a cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails was, was a whip with a lot, of, uh, a lot of strands that came off of it. And tied to those strands were sharp pieces of wood and bone and metal and glass. And they would hit the people over and over again, separating their skin from, from their bones, cutting them wide open. It was really kind of a disgusting thing that they had these, the ends of the strips there uh, separating. These, these, these things would go on for hours. Usually it would kill the people. All for something that they said they believed in because of something they saw. Now, by the way, if we were there at that time, how would we have responded to that beating? I'm going to say that if it had been us, the movement of Jesus would have stopped right there in the first century. That would have been it. Scourge me for a few hours and I'll be like, okay, I get the message. Keep my mouth shut. It was up to us, I think, us modern, soft people. I don't think the message of Jesus would have made it out of the first century. Anyway, here's what happened. So they, they flogged these people. They hit them with these cat of nine tails. They scarred them permanently. They left them in pain for Lord knows how long. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And then what happened after they let them go? What happened after the apostles were whipped within an inch of their lives and then let go from being in front of this tribunal? They left the Sanhedrin Rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. They were beaten, they were bloodied, they were scarred for life, they were permanently disfigured, and they were rejoicing. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Wow. While we believers here in the 21st century are timidly living out our faith, praying for travel mercies and acceptable test results, our spiritual first century forefathers were honored to have suffered in the name of Jesus. They were pleased to give up everything they had for Jesus because he gave up everything for them. So why the disconnect? Well, here's here's what I think. We are, and I'm not just saying you, I'm saying me, we, we're so blessed that we've forgotten to be grateful for, we've forgotten to be good stewards of our blessings, and it's taken away our boldness, all of us. But them, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching. And they never stop proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah day after day in the temple courts. Do you understand what that means? It means they didn't leave Jerusalem. They just got beaten within an inch of their lives in Jerusalem, and they never left the area. They stayed in the area and went out and did the same exact thing again. I read that, and I feel convicted. I can't not feel convicted. Do you feel the same thing? Why can't I have that kind of resolve? And what am I supposed to do now that I've seen it? I'm not even sure. But how about this? How about we work 
on our boldness together. Now, we can start really small. We'll probably never have to go through what the disciples went through. We'll probably never have to live the lives of faith that they had to live, especially in 21st century America. But we can begin to move in the right direction. And we can start by owning the fact that we are the church. It's not this building. It's not our corporate papers. We are the church. And it's up to us now to keep this movement alive, this Jesus movement alive, so we could pass it on to the next generation. Uh, just a little aside here, I want to say, and she, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but whatever. You notice little Vanessa singing up here? Don't look at her. I just want to say, like, I remember when she was in utero, <laughs> passing our beliefs on to the next generation. There's nothing better than that. Anyway, if we're going to do that, we need to be bold. We need to be more bold than we've ever been. And so the way you can be bold is you need to pre-decide. You need to pre-decide to say something. Before it's the moment to say something, you need to go, if I see something, I'm going to say something. If we pre-decide to say something, when it would be easier to, when our inclination would be to say nothing, that's how we can begin to be bold. It's not that hard. Now, let me ask a question. Did anyone here attend Harvard University? Anybody? Oh, good, because I'm going to pick on them a little bit, and I don't want to get in trouble. Back in my lawyer life, whenever we would come up against a Harvard lawyer, we used to take bets as to how long it would take before they mentioned the fact that they went to law school in Harvard. <laughs> By the way, the average time was under 15 seconds. Anyway, but what if we strive to do that, but with Jesus? So here's, here's one way to do this. This is kind of fun, especially here in Boca Raton. So, so you're introduced to a person... And his name is Seth, Seth Cohen. And you say, Seth Cohen, nice to meet you. Where do you go to church? Now, you know why that's kind of a weird thing to say, right? It's Cohen, I just told you. It's a Jewish last name, right? So, Seth Cohen, nice to meet you. Where do you go to church? And Seth Cohen will say, I don't go to church. I'm Jewish. Here's what you can do. Cool, so is our pastor. Can I pick you up on Sunday morning? <laughs> you all can do that. That's bold. Or how about this? Oh, hi, Mark. You remind me of a guy from my church named Mark. Would you like to join me this weekend? See how easy that is? Start these spiritual conversations. It's very easy, and it's bold. It's big, and it's bold. Now, let me ask you this question. I could go on. I could give you more examples, but here's the point. Every single one of us has countless opportunities every day, every week, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, to be bold about Jesus. Being bold is nothing more than just keeping an eye out, keeping our eyes open for opportunities to steer someone to Jesus and then getting into the practice of taking advantage of those opportunities whenever they arise. How do you do it? You, you could wear a cross. You could wear a WWJD bracelet. Yes, they still exist. You could listen to praise music at your desk at work. Or on the job site. You can mention your church. You can mention your church friends. You just need to make opportunities and then be bold enough to take advantage of those opportunities you've made. If we pray for boldness and then we look for opportunities to be bold, I promise you, you will find them a lot more often than you ever thought possible. Now, think about it this way. If the person you love most in the world was just told that they had a disease that would take their life within a month, but you knew precisely how to cure them. 
to cure them instantly and to restore them to full health, how long would you wait to tell your friend, to tell your loved one? Would you wait a day? Eh, I'll get around to it tomorrow. Would you wait a month? Would you wait a year? No, I'm going to tell you, you would tell them the next time you saw them, which would be right away because you'd run to find them. Guess what? Guess what? Drop everything. I've got the cure. I can save your life right now. Hammock Street Church, we all hold in our hands the cure for the disease that will ruin whatever time we have left on this rock and lead to death. And that's the disease of sin. And the cure is faith in the Savior, the one who was born and lived and died and was resurrected so that when we turn from our old ways and follow his way, we can recover from the disease of sin and live lives of abundance for eternity with our God. You see, God has called and directed us to be bold and to live lives of love that are attractive, that attract the lost, so that God can work through us and bring a people to himself. It was the boldness of a coworker of mine that helped me on my journey toward Jesus. And maybe you have a similar story. Wouldn't you like to be the part or be a part of somebody else's salvation story? Some, someone else's story of God's glory. It is not difficult to do, and the rewards of doing so are heavenly. One of my favorite stories about boldly sharing Jesus, some of you know the story already. But years ago, there were two little girls that were a part of Hammock Street Church, Lizzie and Stephanie. Those are their real names. They met when they were eight. Lizzie was in a gym. She's a dancer, and she was dancing and practicing, and Stephanie showed up, and they were dancing this Bible song, and Stephanie said to Lizzie, what's that song? What are you doing? And Lizzie told Stephanie about Jesus, and she said, Jesus loves you, and Jesus wants you to follow him. And Stephanie kept coming back to the class and then started practicing with Lizzie, and then Lizzie invited Stephanie here to Hammock Street. Is that bold? That's bold, especially if you're eight. Stephanie came to Hammock Street. Her family came along with her. And before long, she gave her life to Jesus. And so did the family. And she was baptized. And today, Stephanie is a freshman at Liberty University, Christian University, leading a small group in her dorm and volunteering in the children's ministry in a local church. Just because as an eight-year-old, a friend said, hey, you need to meet Jesus. And Lizzie, of course, is still walking in the faith. She's a freshman at Palm Beach Atlantic. And that's what she is. She is an example and a billboard for faith in Jesus. You can do what Lizzie did, can't you? And guess what? You won't even get whipped with the cat of nine tails for doing so. See, we live in a country and we live in a time where it's never been easier or safer to be bold for Jesus. And man, oh man, does our area need Jesus. Is there someone in your life for whom you're grateful that they were bold enough to tell you about Jesus? Someone who just kept on loving you and kept on showing you how Jesus loves? Well, you can be that person for someone else, and all it takes is a little boldness. This movement began when God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, not to get something, but to give something, to give his life, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. God gave to the world the person who was most precious to him, his son, so that everyone who believes in him could live abundantly and eternally, and now we can keep that going when we live the exemplary lives that God has called us to live.
And when we're bold enough to both model the love that Jesus showed and then share the power of the resurrection that comes with his name. So what do you say? Can we pledge to be bold? Can we promise to each other that we're going to say something when it would be easier to say nothing? That we're going to take advantage of opportunities when they surface? That we're going to go out, we're going to create opportunities because that's what we've been called to do? Because that's how the first century church emerged bigger and better than it started. In the words of Gamaliel, it was an act of God. And God has been active ever since. And we're all a part of it because we're all a part of big church. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word today and thank you for all of our people here at Hammock Street Church, all of the gathered community, the ecclesia, the, the believers, the followers of Jesus who just love. We love each other. We love our area. We love our families. And God, we want to tell people about you. So God, we ask that you give us the boldness to continue to speak of the resurrection and speak of the name of Jesus. And then God, we're excited to see how you'll work through us to bring your people home. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.